You're listening to Dirty Chai Chats, a podcast all about sexual health, love, and relationships at Tufts. My name is Gio. I'm a Tufts sex health rep with the intended double major in international relations, focusing on identity and civic studies with a minor in women and gender studies. Equity within sexual health and reproductive rights continue to be central to my activism and role as a sex health educator. In the future, I hope to expand this passion into creating and helping inform both domestic and foreign policy. And my name is Flo. I'm a community health major, and I'm really interested in raising awareness around sexual and reproductive health disparities, whether it be through storytelling or academic research. We're super excited to be launching this series as a collaboration between the Tufts Observer and the Tufts Sex Health Reps. In this podcast, we hope to create a diverse and inclusive space to delve into these topics. For our very first episode, we're talking all about pleasure, communication, consent, and self-advocacy. I interviewed Ariel Watrous, a worker from the Center for Awareness, Resources, and Education, also known as the Care Center, to get her take on what pleasure and communication looks like at Tufts. Content warning. Some parts of this interview include the discussion of sexual assault. I'm great. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Thank you. So I'll let you introduce yourself and tell me a little about what you do and a little bit about care. Sure. So my name is Ariel Watrous. Uh, she series pronouns. I'm a nurse practitioner at Tufts University Health Services. I'm also the sexual health specialist at the clinic and the, and the campus. I have been working here for almost eight years and I help students all things around sexual health. If they want to figure out how to get STI testing or if they have questions about how to engage around different realizations around their sexuality, I can help them with that, navigate them to the right directions. I also do a lot of work with CARE, which is an amazing team on campus that helps promote healthy communication around intimate relationships and sexuality and has an amazing group of students who are peer leaders and educators on campus that I get to work with and help them design programs based on the questions that are coming up from students. Thank you so much for that, Ariel. So today we're going to be talking about pleasure and communication, which I'm sure you've experienced and encountered a lot within the space you work in. Can you tell me a little bit more about what this looks like in the position you work in? Yeah, so the main conversations that I experience initially with students around pleasure and communication more often than not might come after a not awesome clinical experience or a a sexual health experience that maybe wasn't the best moment for that student. And they are trying to re-acclimate or re-navigate into what they want around this experience for them. So one context that comes up a lot is around like people who have a new STI diagnosis and they're trying to figure out how to communicate what they want around that part of their life moving forward, if it's something that might become a longer issue or if it's not a longer issue. But a lot of times the conversations that I experience with students around pleasure and communication come from this gap that exists between Mm -hmm. I know what I want and I don't know how to ask for what I want. I haven't been given those tools before. What do I do? And that space of what do I do is usually where I meet people um, for the first time or the second time. And 
it's a really interesting space. You and I were talking before the recording about how everyone comes into this space of sexuality development and pleasure from really different places. Like some of us mm-hmm. grow up in cultures where we're invited to kind of explore that part of ourselves and masturbation is talked about, or it's deemed as very dangerous for your health to be sexually interested in anything. And so people come in and they're having a lot of feelings and confusion about that. So one of the first spaces that I help people navigate through is sort of identifying for themselves what's pleasurable. And that's a big place to kind of explore for folks sometimes if they haven't done that before. And what we usually end up doing once we kind of identify that space is being is then translate, look at the things that they want to let the partner or partners know about in those spaces of what they've learned about themselves. That's a great transition. And going off of that and what you've talked to students about in terms of their own pleasure and experiences, what are some ways that you've encouraged this type of dialogue around? Yeah. So one of the things I feel very strongly about as a medical health provider is sexual health autonomy, right? The idea that we all feel really, really comfortable and and confident in what we know about ourselves sexually. You know, you asked about the different kinds of ways to engage in that dialogue. That dialogue can happen with a lot of different people. And so there are different venues where this development of this dialogue can happen. It can be with a trusted friend where maybe that friend and you are talking about things that feel good for your bodies. One way that some people bring it up is they might bring up the context of a recent experience that they've had and just sort of feel like, what was that like? Have you ever had that experience before? What worked for you? We've had the opportunity, unfortunately, not since the pandemic has started, but to create social settings where this can come up more naturally, like group presentations or just events at different centers where people can kind of engage in this conversation in the relaxed, safe space. Being able to find providers that you can talk to about this safely is huge. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. it's still not the baseline, but we're getting there. But ultimately, one of the biggest spaces where this needs to happen to develop this dialogue is with someone that you're sexually interested in. I feel like I encounter a lot of young people and also people beyond sort of the, the standard college age bracket who never really developed the skill set around saying what they want. And so with mm-hmm. me, what they might do in the spaces of the conversations that I have with them is just practice those words. Like thinking about what is it you want to say to your partner that you would like to try and just practicing, I would like to try whatever it is. A lot of time, there's a lot of fear around possible rejection. And so if there's an opportunity with a safe person that you trust to try out what those words will feel like coming out of your mouth and what you might hear back, making it so that the first time you're saying it is not with the person that it's the most important to hear it is usually one of the best practicing tools I've seen work for folks. And what would you say for a person who might not even know what that looks like? Any recommendations? When it comes to sort of supporting just you know, the invitation of learning the body and learning what feels good for you. This book is specifically about people who have vaginas, but it's a really great just resource to have about sort of the science of sex. And it's called Come As You Are, and it's by Emily Nagoski. And it's an amazing book about what the science is behind the different processes around sexuality and the responses that our bodies can have. Another good one, too, is the Sex and Pleasure book from Good Vibrations. The listed author is Carol Queen. And it is an amazing resource just to kind of offer all these different ways to kind of think about what feels good for you. And then, of course, there's always the phenomenal Adrienne Marie Brown, who wrote Pleasure Activism, 
who really just wants people to feel good in their bodies and to know that it's okay to do that and have that be the goal. Erica Hart is an amazing sex educator online on multiple different uh, social media platforms who also helped design specific sex toys that are sort of beyond the binary of typical sex toys, which is amazing. And if you go to any of these folks online, if you follow any of these people on social media, you'll see that they have other recommendations too. But there's so many. Afrosexology on Instagram, Mm -hmm. like all these places that are just so affirming of people exploring what they want and finding ways to find a way to share that dialogue with somebody else. Yeah, thank you so much for all those great resources. What do you suggest is the best time to bring up this type of communication? I really love that question. This whole idea of when is the best time to talk about this stuff comes up a lot because I think that there's so much emotion and feeling and anticipation sometimes around what somebody wants to have happen that it can really shape how they approach the experience. And so I have heard from countless people all these different ways that they have tried it. And um, generally speaking, there are, in some ways, it can be incredibly sexy and empowering to bring it up right before you Mm -hmm. want something to happen. But it depends on what you're talking about, what you want to communicate and what you want to try. And if we're talking about like somebody who wants to communicate a new idea for something sexual to start with a partner, Mm-hmm. that partner might need a little bit of time to be ready for that experience. And so if you bring it up right before you want it to start happening, there may not be enough space for that to, to be enough for that person. So a lot of folks have shared with me that they'll kind of have a conversation outside of the space or outside of the time where they want this to happen as sort of a, hey, I was thinking about this. Can we try that next time? Mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll bring it up a little bit closer to the time because the conversation itself is part of the arousal and the anticipatory space can be very appealing for them. But again, you know, just to stress, like it really depends on what we're talking about. I mean, I have heard stories of it not going so great right before or some stories where it really worked perfectly. I'm thinking of one time a patient shared that, so this was somebody who was dealing with a new um, STI diagnosis and it was certainly well-managed, but they were trying to talk to their partner outside of the bedroom about what they would need to navigate differently. And it wasn't meant to be like an erotic conversation, but it turned Mm -hmm. into one because they had the opportunity to kind of think about all the other parts of the body that they could touch and be intimate with. And it was super, super awesome for them. So that was like this spontaneous thing that Mm -hmm. they loved. So that's sort of the general thoughts that I've had, but it it really depends, I think, on the person and what they're looking to explore sexually. Mm -hmm. I have a little hesitation when in this intimate moment, right? And in this very vulnerable position. Yes. Sometimes it can feel very hard either side to be like, no, I don't want to do this. So how do you make sure if you are choosing to communicate that in the moment that the other person has that space and ability to back out and be conscious of the way you're communicating yourself? What a great question. The importance of being able to experience the full answer from somebody around something like this is a very big part of asking the question in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of people sometimes forget that step when they're thinking about what they want. And that's not, I'm not being accusatory. It's just, I think there's a lot of feeling about being worried about the rejection or what's going to happen after you ask the question that they may not think about what it's doing for that person and how it might change that 
scenario just for that little time. And so one of the ways that I've heard it work really well is say, Hey, I, you know, and this is more like in the moment kind of scenario. Like I was thinking about trying that if you were open to doing it tonight or today, let me know. And then it's sort of like this open space. It might lead to a pause and be like, wait, what do you mean? Like, let's talk about that. How does that, what would that look like? But keeping it as open-ended as you can, or just, you know, letting them know that this is something that you're really interested in and when they are ready to try it. And if that ready is now, that would be great. But also we can talk about it another time, but you have to be ready to understand that that person will have their own reaction and might need some space and some time when you say that. And so having that be a part of the anticipated space is really important, but that can be really hard if you're really excited about what you want to try or if it's in the moment and you're just really turned on and you just want to keep going and having fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really, really great response about keeping it open-ended and making sure that your intentions with it are to have that space. If you're on the receiving end of things, let's say someone is really spontaneous about something and wants to try something and they don't necessarily frame it in this open-ended way and create this type of pressure, then what do you do? Like, how do you Mm -hmm. navigate that for yourself? Well, let's also appreciate that, you know, if we're talking about a situation where there are two or three or four people who are involved, right, with this context, when people are aroused and when they're really in that space of feeling things really good, they're not always processing things at the same Mm -hmm. speed. And I'm not implying like anything bad about that. Like it's just biology. Like we're just, our bodies are experiencing something and our brains are enjoying that. And so there needs to be an understanding of expectation about what someone can process quickly. And so if you're on the receiving end of that and you hear something that you're like completely thrown by or just not ready to do, what, what do you need in that moment? And how do you want to move forward? And it's sort of like, it was a full break. Like they were just like, whoa, completely not expecting that. Or just needing like, okay, hold on, I need a minute. Like, let me think about that. Or it just really causes a pause that needs to be addressed together, right? Like, well, Mm -hmm. I was, you know, let's talk about how you brought that up. I wasn't ready for that. Now I feel pressured, you know, let's, how to, can we talk about another time that we can talk about that? My hope is that the person on the receiving end feels safe enough to say, I'm not ready to do that. And mm-hmm. if, if that's all they say and it's received well, there's always an opportunity to kind of move from that space together into what they are ready for that night. But I think it can be hard. And you mentioned this before, like there's that space of what, what do we feel empowered to do in that moment mm-hmm. and making sure that the person asking isn't inadvertently creating a situation where somebody feels like saying no is really hard. And one of the things, you know, I always encourage folks to think about is sort of making sure that there's shared language around consent and also around what you want to have happen. One of my favorite phrases that I've heard a lot of people use in different contexts is, is this okay? Are you okay Mm -hmm. with this? And I'm not saying that that is an overarching answer for consent, but, or is it a way to introduce something new, right? Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't, think that that would be necessarily a safe process. Be like, I'm going to do something to your body. Is this okay? But when you start exploring something together, or even when you're doing things that you already know feel really good, is this still okay? And that shows that everybody is checking in with everybody else. Yeah. And I think that leads in really perfectly into this other question that has arised a lot within hookup culture, where 
that space and that type of communication hasn't necessarily been established in that same way as, let's say, maybe a longer term fling or partners or partners, right? Right. How do you move from there in this growing age of hookup culture and being on a campus where that's something that happens frequently? Mm -hmm. That is a really great question. And I, I don't think I have a very clear answer for it because I think one of the things that I see a lot with hookup culture is how it evolves and how how the meetup actually happens, how people are communicating in that space and what everyone has different drives for sexual contact, for hooking up. Like there's no, there's zero judgment for me on that front. It's more making sure that people feel as safe as they can in the spaces that they're creating to have a sexual experience. And I certainly have heard of folks who in within a context of a hookup will just lay out what they like. Like they'll just list off what they like to do or what's not okay. And have had, you know, patients share that like if somebody, if they're hooking up with somebody and that person starts to do something they don't like, they'll be like, I didn't say that was okay. You know, and just being able to kind of navigate it very quickly in the space. Mm. I think that works for some people. And I think it's a very powerful skill to have. I just don't know how normalized that is for everybody. And, And that's me just kind of speculating based on what I'm hearing from folks. I'm not presuming anything, but I love that idea that, you know, I didn't say that was okay. Like you can do this, you can do that. I know depending on where the, you know, the context of the hookup, like if there's online information, right? Like if it's an online setup, people list as much as they can sometimes before on their profiles, but sometimes they don't. It's hard to navigate that because I don't want to dismiss that experience. I think that's a valid sexual experience for people, but I also think it's hard because it can be kind of confusing about what they're able to navigate in that space, especially if it's very fast and making sure that they're still okay with the experience. So I guess my short answer is it's challenging. You speak to a lot of very true things that especially people in college are experiencing probably on Tufts campus of how to have these conversations and uncomfortable positions and being only in communication online before you meet Mm -hmm. up and then having that kind of be an unsaid expectation or or whatnot. Mm -hmm. I really like that you started talking about verbal examples or like lines that you can say could you give maybe a few more within at least like a hookup culture perspective of how to use even nonverbal maybe you have some nonverbal examples as well of what this can look like to communicate and to establish your boundaries redirection so somebody is starting mm-hmm. to touch somewhere and the, the person that's getting that touch doesn't like it like that area they'll just say not there try here like try this spot like that yeah, like it's like you're not saying no to stop. I'm just saying please go over here. You know, it's interesting about the nonverbal because I think that and I'll come back to more verbal, I'm sure, but I don't think I've had a lot of folks come and bring that up with me outside of the context of people who have survived assault. And the reason why is because I think that people have had experiences where they thought they were being really clear physically, like nonverbally about pushing away or, or redirecting and it wasn't heard. And so, or well, not, not received, right. It was nonverbal. So it wasn't heard in that respect, but so that one, I'd love to talk more with you about if you've heard examples of that one, but the, again, I'll reiterate, you know, for the verbal, some people would just list off like what they like and just be like, I like to be touched here, 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 here. This is off limits, you know, and just like, this is not off limits or, and just guiding people through the spaces like this is okay. Do it harder or do it softer. Like I've had people describe that they'll just kind of guide people through their bodies 
in that way. And that can be really fun. But yeah, the nonverbal is an interesting area. I wanted to hear more of your thoughts on that too. Yeah, moving and repositioning hands or other body Mm -hmm. parts and using that as a guide. A good example can also be just moving your body so you're in a more dominant type of position yeah right? totally so totally maybe you're on the bottom and then you go on top and then you have mm-hmm. more control mm-hmm. over what happens and I think that mm-hmm. creates a powerful type of dynamic mm-hmm. especially for individuals who've experienced assault myself included that's been a really empowering way to take back and reclaim my own sexuality my own sexual experience Definitely reclaiming and being direct or even in this verbal way to be like do you like this and checking in or using a combination of I want you to guide me to what you like right um, or let me show you what I yes and that kind of like arousal erotic kind of like sexy Mm -hmm. atmosphere to be able to do both because even then verbal sometimes just isn't enough and will not get you to the point where you're seeking Mm-hmm. Well, and we're kind of circling the idea of just blending them, right? Like doing a bunch of verbal and nonverbal at the same time. But you brought up something I love. I love that you brought this up. The whole idea of let me show you what I like. Let me show you what feels good. Because what that allows, besides being a, an amazing sort of intro into somebody's sexual experience and very erotic for some, sometimes it's masturbatory, right? And they're watching mm-hmm. that experience and they're learning from that with you. It can be tur- a turn on for both people. It's such an empowering wonderful autonomous way to be like i'm going to share myself with you here you go here learn from this have fun like it's just i love i love that approach and i kind of going back to what we were talking about at the beginning i do meet a lot of folks in this context who really are developing that self permission to even explore that for themselves and it can be either from somebody who's a survivor and just didn't get that chance yet to kind of explore that for themselves in a way that feels safe or it's simply Somebody who was just, you know, the messaging they always got was pleasure is a sin and you should not do that. And now they're being told that they are allowed to and they're like, wait, what? That's allowed? That's a big step. And I think this idea of self-permission is very interesting and, and complex in that way of getting to the point where you reclaim that for yourself and in spaces where maybe you didn't even think it was possible. There's a lot of social conditioning also of of genders and stereotypes and who should receive pleasure. For me, it's been sexual health spaces that I've learned about that. It's not been through school. It's not been through curriculum. They don't talk about pleasure in this way that is geared towards all genders. Right. Also, I'm just thinking about a conversation I had in the last few months with a person who is really trying to break down the belief system that they were given that their worth as a person is diminished by them engaging, in quotes, too much sexual activity. And they are really trying to redirect that space in their heads to be more productive. And they're really having a hard time with it. I think they'll get there. And it's just a question of time. And sort of like you were describing, you know, the places where you learned it, I think they have to find new places of learning. I shared a bunch of the resources that I shared on here already with them. But I think, and you mentioned teaching across genders, like, I think that's a great segue into just talking about how do we do that? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Even on like the tough campus community through sex health rep that's where our conversation tries to gear toward it's being inclusive across genders but in this conversation how do you talk about this concept of 
pleasure and, and communicating effectively with people of all different genders and different experiences? I love that question so much because one of my favorite parts about my job is that the answer to that has constantly evolved. As in the time that I've been here, the concept of beyond the binary and and existing in these spaces that don't fit into these rigid spaces of gender or even sexual orientation have just become more normalized in the conversation. There's still a lot of work to do, right? We still need to kind of move through those spaces some more. One of the ways that I approach it sort of in my context, right? So I'm a clinical medical person is being very aware of how I talk about bodies and how I talk about sexual experiences of those bodies. Whenever I talk to a student about anything going on in their sexual life, I never assume anything based on who I'm talking to about who they're having sex with. And I invite them to to share that information with me. A lot of providers are talking about the types of body parts that might be in contact with other body parts. So we're not saying, or hopefully we're not saying, how many guys, how many girls, whatever. Just like, tell me about your sexual partners. Tell me, do you have partners with vulvas? Do you have partners with penises? Do you have anal sex? Is it kind of really getting into the space? What is it that you're doing with your body and with whom? And how can we help you kind of keep that safe and awesome for you? I think the continued evolution and having these conversations is a really key point that you brought up and relates back to this idea of having misconceptions of what pleasure is and what pleasure looks like. Can you talk about some of those misconceptions you've seen students come in with about pleasure? Oh my gosh. Yes. How much time do we have? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I think the biggest misconceptions about pleasure come from the absence of self-exploration and also a more nuanced appreciation of what pleasure means for us sexual as sexual beings. One of the bigger misconceptions I hear that really is hard for me to hear from, from folks is that if they're not having a traditional sort of orgasm at the end of whatever their experience is, then it wasn't satisfactory. There's also a lot of misconceptions about how long things are supposed to last or how long it can take to get to a point of pleasure. We are not, generally speaking, I think there's, you know, we're coming in the last couple of years, I've seen more shows or, or platforms that are, are a little bit more embracing the, the space, you know, between everything that we're talking about. But culturally, we don't have examples of, of normal, and I'm using that term super widely, like the broad, beautiful spectrum of sexuality in our media. And so I'll meet people who are having sexual experiences for the first time ever, and they can be any age. And there's this, in quotes, supposed to, I should already be able to Mm -hmm. blah with this experience. And there's all of these misconceptions based of timelines that are simply don't exist, like in shows or in movies or, or what it's supposed to look like when you have an orgasm or how you're supposed to experience an orgasm or what makes you orgasm. Like all of these ideas of these shoulds that come from very limited scoped media that doesn't help people understand what their own experiences are. A lot of that alludes to the porn industry and what we see today and how we're taught. I, mm-hmm. in my own work, have heard a lot of stories of I learned what was sex through watching porn. And I think that's a very dangerous misconception of 
not necessarily learning about sex. You're learning about this idea and this fantasy world that is very exclusive and does not talk about these things and are frankly not realistic. I also resonate with this idea of the traditional orgasm and how in binary situations or intimate situations that men are supposed to always finish and and come and women are sometimes supposed to orgasm, but it's more important if the man does, right? And I've seen Mm -hmm. that a lot in my work I've done lately at Tufts is if you're in that heterosexual relationship and being intimate it usually falls on the woman to feel bad if the guy didn't orgasm and it's been a conversation that I've heard come up a lot is he didn't finish and then the questions probe well did you orgasm and he didn't and it was like no but he should have finished because this is the culture and mentality that's very very hard to get away from Even using, like, the way that you said, you know, like, they didn't finish, like, even using the orgasm as the end of the the Mm. experience, I really struggle with that, because it's like, why? Let's say if we're talking about that heteronormative description that you just had, okay, so he came, he he finished, in quotes, congratulations, now you can help (laughs) your partner finish too, like, if we're using that language, right? Like, just because that piece stopped doesn't mean other things need to stop too. And I think that, you know, this, this misconception of expectation about what is a complete sexual experience is one that Mm. I think there's a lot of people figuring out as they move forward. Because I think culturally and in the media and all of these, and, and, and yes, I was alluding to porn, but I'm also just thinking of other shows everybody kind of went into a frenzy for Bridgerton, right? When that came out. And I have some mixed feelings about it, you know, and just this. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And um, why is that the end? Because this one person finished, like it's, it it doesn't make sense. They still have a mouth. They still have hands. They still have a lot of other ways that they can engage. That would be incredibly fulfilling for, the partner, whatever their gender or sexual presentation is. That is an expectation that I I see a lot of people figuring out in their heads when we talk sometimes. Yeah, I love that you frame it in this way that I'm asking this question more of what is a complete sexual experience? Just very ingrained again, even how I used it, right? And now I'm reflecting on myself here of oh, finishing, like what, what that means and how that continues to promote this idea and just how we use it. So I'm sitting here a little bit in reflection right now on that because that's <laughs> an incredible point that I really appreciate you saying because I think that's something we can all reflect on and grow from when we talk about pleasure and, and communication. For sure. I think it also, I mean, we're talking about sort of, you know, the end, the finishing point, but also let's talk about how it starts. There are a lot of misconceptions about what foreplay means. And also what's supposed to happen when. And there are some people with vaginas who can only reach a peak orgasm with external stimulus, right? Like a clitoral stimulus, external clitoral stimulus will be very specific. That doesn't mean that they can't enjoy insertive sex or any other kind of sexual contact. But why would that need to be linked always to that experience? Like what if they were to start with any, like, let's say, they use their vibrator first with their partner present 
and they have that experience and then incorporate the partner into the play after that and then do something else through the next the rest of that experience together it's like there's no step-by-step guide of how it's supposed to look every time as long as both people or if there are more people involved feel good about what's happening and their bodies feel good about what's happening then isn't that enough yeah and I think like that really ties in what we were touching upon earlier in our conversation of people with different bodies and how they experience things, right? Like in queer spaces, this is a conversation that happens more because things are not so black and white. I mean, exactly. they're never black and white, but they're not necessarily told in this strict narrative. And so I see that a lot in, in the queer community, but I think transferring that also and reimagining what this is and like you said various times like the evolving world with gender Mm -hmm. and hookup culture and applying that is very powerful that is an amazing and beautiful component of the queer community that they have this power to to already speak this way or start to speak this way around their sexual experiences but yeah it is constantly evolving and we always have to remain open to the steps as they move through I want to thank you for all your amazing and, and wonderful answers. I feel like I've personally learned a lot and I hope those who are listening in today can also learn a lot from this and your amazing expertise. So thank you again and thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. As Ariel mentioned, the conversation surrounding pleasure and communication is continuously evolving. And with that comes continued conversations. If you are interested in exploring this topic more, please visit the Tough Sex Health Reps Instagram at Tufts SHR and submit hump day Q&A questions and or reach out directly to the care center. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.